This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. You know, we uh, talked about last week, I want to just share it with you real quick, where we've been going for the last, I don't know, couple months. You know, the last major thing we talked about was the 70 rev- uh, resolutions of uh, Jonathan Edwards, and we followed that up with Revelation chapter 2 and the church at Ephesus about the heights in which we've fallen. But the whole idea is the fact is is making a decision to be resolute and doggedly determined about some things of the Lord. We've uh, also talked about how to live a life filled with the Holy Spirit after last year spending months, maybe it was two years ago, spending months on just what the Holy Spirit, who He is and the gifts and stuff of that nature. We talked about spiritual breathing, about living a life so close to the Lord that whenever you sin, whenever you grieve Him, that you immediately are aware of that and you can just breathe out a confession of sin to Him. Lord, I'm so sorry for my attitude. I'm sorry for the words that came out of my mouth or the thoughts that I have. Lord, would you forgive me for that? And you breathe in His forgiveness and you rock on. We've talked about coming up with your own almost like a mission statement about the Lord. And I shared with you last week that what we're going to be doing is on Sunday mornings, we're going to be talking about what we believe, and that stems from last week. And on Tuesday, we're going to be talking about the book of Jude, yet I find the book of Jude bleeding over even into Sunday morning. But regardless of what book we're studying, it's all going to be how to bring us closer to him and how to have a revival in our own spiritual heart. You know, before there's a national revival, before there's a church revival, there has to have an individual revival in each of us. So last week, as we, as I shared with you in the beginning about how some churches have mission statements and businesses have vision and mission statements which govern every decision that they make, as a believer in Christ, we should kind of have the same thing. Jonathan Edwards called them his resolutions. We view resolutions like New Year's resolutions that have no meaning, and so that's kind of an unfortunate word to use in the English, but to have a statement of what I believe about God and what he believes about me, and so therefore every decision I make, every conversation I have, every business decision, every dime that I spend, everything I watch on television is filtered through this grid, and all our grids will be different, filtered through this grid of who Christ is and what I believe about him and what I've been committed to do. Like Justice said two years ago that he wanted to strive for the crown, noted that in in his Bible. And, and you know, that that's something that, you know, every decision that I make, am I striving for this crown, this crown that I could I can give to the Lord? And and so we talked about that. And last week I, I shared with you just some of the things that I believe. You know, if I asked you to go home and get a sheet of paper and write down the attributes of God that are most important to you, some of us will find it, it will be mercy. Some of us will find it will be grace. Some of us may find it will be love or forgiveness or long-suffering or patience or stuff of that nature. But for me, it was his sovereignty. 
It has always been his sovereignty. And I think that's because I'm just a rebellious person. I'm a prideful person in my own nature. And, you know, my parents, my parents raised me to believe that I can do anything I wanted to do if I put my mind to it and spend, spend enough effort and, you know, master of your own fate and all that kind of stuff, which is a great virtue to teach your children. Teaches them not to be doormats. But it's a terrible virtue to carry into your Christian life. Because it's not about me. It's about him. It's totally opposite of that. And so there's this struggle that takes place. And so God has continually had to show me over and over again that he is sovereign. And that's the first attribute for me that I write down. And I talked about some of the things last week about his sovereignty. And we unpacked that and and kind of looked at it to see how it affects us just in our daily lives. He is a supreme ruler. I am not. He is the creator. I am not. He's the final authority in everything, and I am not. True story. Before I got saved, when people would go to church and people would talk about standing before the judgment seat of Christ, I literally had in my mind's eye that I knew I was lost, that that this big book would be opened, and they would look, and my name is not there, and depart from me, and the angels are getting ready to grab me, and I would say, just give me five minutes. And God God Almighty would say, okay, and I would present my case to him. I'd put a sales job on the Lord. I would try to, you know, tell a story and weave it in such a way that he would see it from my perspective, and he would feel compassion for me. And when I finished with that, the Lord Jesus, honestly, before I even knew him, the Lord Jesus would look up at the Father and go, got a point. And God would say, you're right, and send me into heaven. I mean, it was that height of, of areas, but he is the final authority in everything. Not my mind, not the way I see things, but him. He's complete. He's all in all. And, and, and remember, when we went to the book of Col- Colossians, Colossians chapter two, and I am complete in him. I lack nothing in him. And there's nowhere to go beyond God. So I'm, I'm sitting this week and I'm praying and I'm, I'm preparing the message. Point number two. This is, this is, this is what I believe. You know, when I'm finished, you guys can come up and share what you believe. But this is my vision statement, my mission statement. He is sovereign. Well, what is he sovereign in? Primarily in salvation. I mean, I just, that was the most overpowering and overwhelming truth that I ever saw, that he is sovereign in my salvation. I'm not the sovereign one. I'm not holding on to him by my faithfulness. He is holding on to me, and no one can snatch me out of his hands. And so I I started looking at that, and I got ready to teach that. And by the way, it's a good thing. It's a good thing to be reminded of these truths, that we are chosen in him and by him for salvation. And, and as I sat back and I started reflecting on that, I realized how profound that was, and, and I wanted to to unpack that for us today so that we love him more and appreciate him more and see him for who he is. And so I went back to the book of Jude and, and I'm starting to read and Jude, and we, we talked about who he was on Tuesday, a bond servant two Tuesdays ago. We unpacked the fact that we're just slaves of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Last week we talked about the fact that Jude, who was a half brother of Jesus, never even said Jesus is my earthly kin and steady because of humility or because in Psalm 69 of the way he treated him as a kid. And this is what we talked about on Tuesday as I'm going through this. And so I'm, I'm moving to the next phase to those who are called. 
Yes, called. That fits in perfect with, with God's sovereign and salvation. So I begin preparing the message for you, for me. The word called. The Greek word called is kletos, and it means being called or invited or welcomed. It was originally used to designate those invited to a banquet, so I started digging a little bit deeper, and it's used a lot in the epistles, but only twice in the Gospels. Strange. Strange that that word is only used twice in the Gospels, in Matthew 20, verse 16, and Matthew 22, verse 14. And, and it's always used associated with the phrase, many are called, but few are chosen. Many are invited or welcomed as to a banquet, and Matthew 22 actually talks about that, but only few are chosen. So I started looking up those passages. Matter of fact, turn to to Matthew 20 if you would. I'll just read these to you. Two passages where the Lord uses the same word. In each of these passages, it talks about the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Oh, I remember this one. Now, when they had, when they had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour, about nine o'clock in the morning, and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, up to me, my choice, I will give you. So they went. Again, he went about the sixth hour, noontime, and the ninth hour, three in the afternoon. And about the eleventh hour, long day here, he went out and found those standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. Twelve-hour work day, they've only got an hour left. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his stewards, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. You know the story. And when those came who were hired about the 11th hour, they each received a denarius. And when the first came, they supposed, rightly so, from a human standpoint, that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained to the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to those who have borne the burden of the heat of the day. But he answered them, he answered one of them and said, and I love the way the landowner does this, he's, he's being polite, yet he's being firm. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things, or is your eye evil because I am good? So, Summary, conclusion, the last will be first, and the first last, for many are called, but few chosen. I have written right under here, in my Bible, the word election. Many are called, and few chosen. We understand that in the, the writings of Paul, and we see this here with Jesus, two chapters more, in Matthew chapter 22. We find the um, a different story, and this is a parable of a wedding feast. And I won't have you read all this, but you know the man's having a wedding feast, and he invites the guests to come, and the guests don't want to come; they're too busy doing what they want to do. And so he sends his servants out to ask him to come in, and and they're not interested in that. Verse six: They seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. 
The king is inviting people to a wedding feast, to a banquet, and he sends out his servants, and they despise the king so much, they kill him, his servants. Verse 7, when the king heard about this, he was furious, and he sent out his armies and destroyed all those evil people who were killing the king's servants. But now he has a problem. I have all the people that I've invited are gone, and now I have this wedding feast prepared. Who am I going to invite? Verse 8, then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who are invited are not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you can find, invite to the weddings. So they went out, and they invited the good and the bad. They invited the rich and the poor. They invited those that the world says worthy, and the world says is not worthy. And the hall was filled, verse 10. But then the king came in. And he saw, verse 11, a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. Well, how did anybody have on a wedding garment? Well, obviously the king must have provided for them wedding garments because they went out and just brought in anybody to this feast. And they all came to the feast. But here is a man who slipped in without a wedding garment. Obviously, this man recognized he was out of place. Obviously, he realized he wasn't dressed like everybody else. Obviously, he had not been given the clothes that the king had to clothe themselves properly to be in the king's presence. And so, verse number, verse number 11 says that they didn't have a wedding garment. Verse number 12 says, so he said to him, give me an answer for your insult. Give me an answer for the fact that you're not dressed in the attire I have provided. You do not have on you symbolically the righteous robes that I provide. Friend, how did you come here in a wedding garment? How, how did you come in here without the proper clothes? And the man obviously knew he was wrong because he couldn't even give a defense. He was speechless. And then the sobering part. Then the king said to him, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? Because many are called, but few are chosen. Oh, Lord, this is great. I mean, this is great. We're talking about what it means to be called. It's so true that the greatest gift you and I have ever received from the Lord is the fact that he called us to himself. And he called us to himself not on the basis of our merits, but on the basis of, of just his grace and mercy. Because none of us deserve this. And so I jumped over to Romans chapter 2. You don't have to turn to it. I've got it up here. And you know this passage. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Oh, but I seek after God. Do you seek after God? I, I understand some is what the scriptures say, I think. And, and how can this statement be true of us? So let's make it personal. There is none, you, me, or anyone who has ever lived on the planet, none who, who is righteous, none. Matter of fact, the scripture says that our righteousness to him is like filthy rags. There's not none. Really? Yes. No, not one. There is none, again, you and me and everyone who has ever lived, who understands, who understands the gospel, who understands the nature of God, who understands the inspiration of scripture, that this word now is quickened to us. It's not foolishness to us, but is life and strength. There's not one who understands. 
There is none. Again, you, me, the, the smartest man on the planet, anyone who ever lived who seeks after God, no, not one. And I'm, I'm typing this up and I'm preparing a power, PowerPoint and I love teaching on this kind of message because it's just, it inspires me and overwhelms me and lets me realize how good God is. And, and if I had to preach one message before I died, it would be on the sovereignty of God and salvation because it means so much to me. And right there, in the middle of doing this, I felt his spirit just kind of move off. It was just kind of, it was kind of like, oh, okay, Lord, but, but I, I'm doing something good here. I'm, I'm, I felt empowered, but now I don't. I feel like I'm preparing a message in the flesh rather than preparing a message in the spirit. I'm, I'm, what's that? Is there something you want to show me? Is there something I'm missing? Because if I don't feel your spirit as I'm preparing this, then I don't want to go any further. There must be something that's going on. And it was like, it was like a divine interruption. And so I, I turned back to Jude, and I started reading it again. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, I mean, that, that's the next page. You don't want to do called? How about, do you want me to go to sanctified or are preserved in Jesus Christ? Or how about the mercy and peace and love being multiplied to you? I mean, those are profound truths that we need to go through. Do you, is that not the direction that, that you want me to go? No, I want you to go to verse number three. I want you to move and we'll set aside verse number one and two. But for you today, for us today, I want you to look at verse number three. Okay. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered once for all delivered to the saints. All right, Steve, so ask the questions. All right. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning what? Our common salvation. That's a good thing. I mean, that's a good thing to be doing. I'm writing about, uh, Jude is writing about our common salvation. It's a letter of affirmation. It's a letter of encouragement. It's a letter to, to spur us on to deeper spiritual things. It's, it's kind of like what Paul does in, in his epistles. But he says something happened. And I found it necessary, and it's very interesting what that word means, to write to you, exhorting you to what? To contend earnestly for the faith. Described as what? As once for all, finite, one time complete, delivered to the saints. Our Lord, so this is what Jude is doing. There's, there's something that's taking place here. What, what, what's happening here? What do you want to show me? So I do as I always do, as I want to find out exactly what it means, I mean what it says, before I can determine what it means. Beloved. Well, obviously, he's writing to Christians because the word means dear one, and in the Scripture, it's only spoken about Christians who are united with God and each other under love. So this is a letter going out to believers. Beloved, while, that's a time indicator. While he was writing, why he was composing a document that we don't even know what happened to it. Maybe it was another long epistle. Maybe it was a, you know, a 300 page book. He was writing to, while he was in the process of doing this, 
It says, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. When we think of diligence, at least when I do in the English, I think of, you know, stick-to-itiveness. But in the Greek, it means speed, haste. It's something that needs to be done. It has to be done. There's an urgency about it. There's a zeal about it. You don't understand. While I was in the middle of urgently writing with haste and zeal about our common salvation, but the word right, if you'll notice in verse number three, the word right is listed twice. One of them is in the present tense and one of them is is in the aorist tense. And the present tense means it's a continuous action. So I'm writing continually. I'm in the middle of doing something very good, something God-honoring, something that that will bring you praise, God. I'm, I'm writing other believers and I'm telling them about our common faith. I'm, I'm sharing with them possibly what my experience has been like and what you've told me, told me and shown me and how to stand up against temptation, stuff pastors do as they're preaching to their congregation. I mean, Jude is doing something marvelous here. And all of a sudden, boom, it changed. All of a sudden, there was some sort of interruption. Because he says, I found it necessary. Now, again, that's kind of a watered-down English word because necessary is like, yeah, I need to go take care of that because it's necessary for me to get it done. When I think of necessary, I think it's something I should do, but if I don't do, it's not the end of the world. It's not what the Greek means. No, it's of necessity. It has to be done. And then you're compelled to do it. You're driven to do it. You're constrained to do it. Your constraint now is imposed upon you by circumstances or by law or by duty. It's something that you have to do. It is necessary for you to file your taxes each year, honestly. It is necessary for you to drive under the speed limit. It is necessary for you to be faithful with your spouse. And so I, I see this, and you know, it's a whole lot different in the Greek than, than it is in the English. It's not just, I found it necessary, it's something I should do. No, I'm, I'm compelled by this, by some force greater than myself, by circumstances I see around me, or by law, or by duty, or, or something imposed upon me. I find it necessary to write, but this is in the aorist tense. This doesn't mean to write continually but it means an action that has to be performed right now. Right now. You need to stop what you're doing, and you need to do what needs to be done right now. But Lord, I'm I'm, I'm doing good stuff here. I'm raising my kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I'm loving my wife. I'm going to church. I'm working hard. I'm saving money. I'm doing all the stuff that we exalt in our in our culture and society today. I'm doing all the things I should be doing, but there's something else you need to be doing right now. Right now, heiress tense. I found it necessary to write to you to what? To encourage, exhort, to beseech to admonish them to to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. You can read the rest of his letter. And this this 25-verse letter talks about the apostasy that was facing. It talks about the encroaching powers of Satan that are we. Uh, uh, worming their way into the church and worming their way into the into the lives of these Christians, and so it's a very pointed, it's a very non-encouraging, it's a it's an in-your-face kind of letter that Jude felt compelled to write midstream and doing something that was really good, 
that was positive, that was something that everybody needs and affirms. No, there's another task for you, and it's something that has to be done right now. Kenneth Wiest is a um, um, biblical linguist, and uh, he has um, got a, a set of word studies. And what he did is he took the New Testament and he used as many English words as it were necessary to convey the meaning in the Greek. And, you know, for love, for example, if you see just the word love, he would add enough words to it to make sure that you know that it was filio or it was eros or it was agape. And so here's how he interprets verse 3. Divinely loved ones, when giving every diligence to the writing to you concerning the salvation possessed in common by us all, I had constraint laid upon me, obviously by the Holy Spirit, to write to you, beseeching you to contend with intensity and determination for the faith once for all entrusted into the safekeeping of the saints. And so that's exactly what Jude did. And that's what we're going to be looking at on Tuesday or on Sundays as we begin going through this. But I sat back and I go, okay, what just happened here? What's, what's going on? I mean, Jude began to do something he felt needed to be done, and the Lord interrupted him and changed his life and direction forever. I have no idea if he ever wrote that other letter. If so, it was not considered inspired. Uh, there's been no copies of it left, even in you know, non-biblical literature. We don't know anything about that. But we do know about this letter that the Holy Spirit constrained him to do and set aside not what he was doing evil, but what he was doing good, probably the greatest good he thought he'd ever done for the Lord by writing this, this letter to, to encourage other believers to, about their common salvation. He set that aside because he had a higher calling for Jude. Yet, of course, as with all of us, when God speaks, you have a choice. And this is the question that I was asked when God spoke to me this week using this passage about something specifically he wanted me to do. And the choice that I have is the same choice Jude has. Do I do this or do I go in the course that seems comfortable to me? You know, over the last couple of years, I've asked you many, many times to rate your own spiritual life, your spiritual life, not by anybody else, but just by yourself, based on a scale from 1 to 10. And by and large, I would say every time I've asked that, 95%, maybe even higher, have been anything other than a 10. And so we come to church. I mean, same thing happens to me. We come to church and somebody asks me, or when I ask you to rate your spiritual life on a 1 to 10, if mine's an 8, okay, well... It's an eight. I feel bad about it. I'm falling back from where I once was with the Lord. I'm not as close to him as I was at some other point in time in my life. But then I go out and do nothing about it. Or I try to do something about it. And then I experience a 10 and maybe an 11. And I'm growing closer to the Lord. But then I get tired or, you know, something happens or work goes bad or your car has, you know, problems. And and all of a sudden it kind of drops back down because life just takes its toll. And we just limp on. Afraid to share Christ with other people because this abundant life in Christ, this, this life of peace and security and this, this life of wonder has somehow eluded us. 
week after week and month after month and year after year. So we have worship services that we try to to jive things up a little bit so we get some sort of emotional response like you would get if you went to a concert or something, but dissatisfying is at best. So what do you do, Steve? I want to keep doing what you're doing. It's good. It's good. God's honoring it. And, you know, I feel comfortable doing it and I enjoy doing it. Or do you want to be changed to do something different? And then the doubt kicks in. Now, did I, did I really hear from the Lord in that? Is God really calling me into a direction I'm unfamiliar with? Maybe something that I haven't done. Maybe something that I'll be misunderstood. Maybe something that, that I'll be less affirmed. I mean, is, is that what we're really talking about here? And if so, where does my faith play in? And these are called God's interruptions. I've had some in my life, and I had one this week because I was just going through, and, and, and I'll tell you more about that in time to come. As I was going through and looking at the book of Jude, and we see them in scriptures all the time. The Bible is full of God's interruptions. Full of them. As a matter of fact, as I started thinking about every single notable character in the Bible, every single one I could put my finger on, they're going on with life the way they want to, and God comes in and says, no, I have something radically different for you. It's your choice whether to follow or to continue on on what feels comfortable. Or lukewarm. Well, here's David, youngest son. I'm just doing my job. I mean, my job is to take care of sheep. I got Jesse over here, and I got all these other brothers, and and I'm just this ruddy kid, and I've been out in the field, and yes, I'm out there, and I'm developing a relationship with God, but I don't think it's probably any greater than anybody else's relationship. I mean, I don't know what David's probably thinking. I don't know what Jesse's relationship is like, but he's known God a lot longer than I have. Certainly, I'm not as as spiritual as so many of the priests that God has called. I'm just doing my job. I'm being faithful to my dad. I'm guarding the sheep. I'm doing exactly what I should be doing. And yes, I've, you know, God has empowered me to, to kill a lion and, and some of the other things, but I'm just doing my job. And out of nowhere, here comes this prophet, and the prophet goes to all my other brothers and wants to anoint me king of Israel. And so they call me in, and the prophet looks at me and, behold, the king of Israel. No, Saul is the king of Israel. What are you talking about here? No, Saul has offended the Lord. God has set Saul aside. He's looking for a man after God's own heart. I'm just a kid, probably in my late teens. Well, you in or you out? Are you going to accept the mantle or not? Are you going to pay the price or not? You're not going to be king today, tomorrow, or the next day. Your kingdom's going to be in exile. Your best friend's going to get killed. The whole world's going to turn against you. I mean, I'm going, to, I'm going to use you in a mighty way in front of Goliath, and Saul's going to hate you. I mean, you're going to be a, um, you're going to have to feign mental illnesses with the enemies of Israel just to survive. You want it or not? You're up for it? You're willing for divine uh, interruption, which is going to change your life from different than what you thought. I just wanted to take care of the sheep. Yeah, well, God's got bigger sheep for you to take care of. You in? Are you out? Um, scared to death. That's good. It's good. It's your choice, David. What do you want? 
And we know the story. Paul, incredibly intelligent man. I don't want to be a shepherd. I want to be a Pharisee, and I want to be a member of the Sanhedrin. May have been. You know, so I'm, I'm trained by Gamaliel. I, I'm, I'm more zealous than anybody else. There's this heretical Jesus sect that has come up, and, and I'm there, and I'm, I'm giving my official authority for the stoning of Stephen, who exhibits this kind of grace that I've never seen before. And they, they put their cloaks at my feet, and from that point on, I do everything I can within my power to stamp out this, this Christian sect. I go to foreign cities and I drag these people in and I take their possessions from them and I probably torture them and I probably put many of them to death, men, women, children, and yet they all proclaim the goodness of Christ. And I'm on my way to Damascus. Nobody else is as sold out as I am. Nobody else has asked the high priest for this authority for these extradition letters, but I am. And on the way there, God says, I'm changing your life. Do you accept this, Paul? Because if you do, I will send you before my countrymen and kings. Wow, kings. Like I'm going to be like the pastor to the president. No, for I will show you how much you must suffer for my namesake. I bear on my body the brand marks of Christ, which are probably the scars from his floggings. You in? Or is your life better doing it your way? God blessed him with this divine interruption, this, what you're doing is okay. Like with David, it's good. It's, you know, you didn't, Paul, you know, you've, you've chosen a path of life and you're excelling. You're more excelling than anybody else. As a matter of fact, from a political standpoint, someday you may be the, you know, the speaker of the house of the Sanhedrin at that time. Doing good. Make your dad proud. I have something different for you. I'm going to show you that you're going to live in caves. I'm going to show you that you're, you know, not going to have the wonders of the world here. I'm going to show you how much you must suffer for my namesake. You in? You out. You want to pay the price? You want to count the cost? Are you okay just being who you are? And here's this teenager. I mean, scholars believe she was between the age of 12 and 15. Kids matured faster back then than they do today. 12 and 15. She spent this man, and this man has picked her out, probably, you know, 10, 12 years older than her, has, has come and secured an arrangement with her dad, and she's this chaste woman, and she's marrying this godly man, and her whole life's kind of planned out in front of her. I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful. God, you've been so good to me. You've given me Joseph, who's well thought of in the community. He's got his own house and his own business, and, and he's a carpenter, and, and he's chosen me out of all these other people, and my parents approve, and, and God, this is going to be a great marriage. Thank you for blessing this. Thank you for blessing me this way. And then all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord comes to her and says, I'm going to make you a byword in the town in which you live. Well, what do you mean? I'm going to give you the blessing and the honor of carrying the Christ child. Um, okay, but and they're, they're all going to think I'm a skank. I mean, they're all going to think that I've, I've, I've done something I shouldn't have done. And whereas it's highly acceptable in our culture today, even in the church, it was a stonable death sentence back then. It was horrific. You're a 14-year-old girl, and you're going to go tell your parents and your friends and your husband-to-be 
that no, I really haven't been unfaithful to you. The baby I'm carrying is the long-waited Messiah. Really? And what did she say? Be unto me according to your word. Knowing that even when Jesus was a man, they even still chided Jesus. We're not the son of fornication like you are, bringing back what happened 33 years ago with his mother Mary. The shame was still there from a secular level, and she didn't care. Ladies, what would you say? Uh-uh. Man, nobody will believe me. I, no, I ain't going to do that. I mean, I can't because my reputation will be soiled by the man who says he came and had no reputation. And, and what if jo- Joseph doesn't believe and no guarantee he wants to marry me anymore? As a matter of fact, he could actually do the righteous thing if he was a good Jew at that time and have me stoned for my sin. Well, Mary, are you in or are you out? This is a divine interruption. All the plans that you've laid out, everything good, being a godly mother and a godly wife and homemaker and all those good things that you were trained for, they're all going to be set aside because I have something better for you and greater for you. Are you willing to surrender your future to me? Are you in or you out? I just I don't see how it's going to work. Exactly. That's where faith comes in. God's a businessman making some good money. As a matter of fact, he made money that was so good that it cost him something dearly. He's probably one of the richest Jews around because he's a tax collector, but he's hated by his countrymen. I don't really care. He doesn't hang around the Romans because you know the Romans think he's a sellout, and he is a sellout to his Jews, so he just accumulates his money, and everything is fine. Sitting at the tax table. As a matter of fact, I shared this with you when we went to the book of Matthew, just as a reminder. There's two different words that is used for a tax collector. And uh, in the Greek, one of them is one who's very wealthy and decides to hire someone else for collecting the taxes. In other words, I'm going to hire Bob over here to collect taxes. I don't want to be out there. I don't want the people to hate me. I'm just going to sit back and pull the the strings behind my corporate uh, structure here. And then there's the one that is so greedy that he doesn't want to pay anybody a commission to collect taxes. He's going to be out there in the sun and the scorn every single day doing it himself. That's the word, gabai. That is the word that's used to describe Matthew. And Jesus walks up to him and simply says, follow me. Well, if I do, it costs me everything financially. Everything. Because I'll never get that franchise with the Romans again. They're going to have somebody else in there. No Jew's going to hire me. They all hate me anyway. The zealots probably want to kill me. But yet I will. I will follow you, and then I will. Are you in? Well, if I do, it's going to cost me some money. Oh, it's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you tons of money. Matter of fact, it's going to cost you your entire business. That's what happened to Peter and Andrew and James and John. Cost them everything. Jesus, come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And they left the fish. They left the nets. They left their boats, and James and John left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants. I did all this for you. I built these franchises for you. I want to train you to take over this business to support your wife and your kids. And you're going to follow this holy man? Yeah. Yeah, because catching fish is as important as catching men. Are you in or are you out? What's going to happen to us? Well, you're going to die. You know, John, of course, 
John, of course, is assumed died a natural death at the age of probably a hundred after experiencing prison and being boiled in oil and survived. Peter and Andrew, James, all suffered martyrdom, just like the rest of them. That's your future. Are you in? Or do you love this world more than anything? It's a divine interruption that God has for every single one of us. A divine interruption to go from something not bad to good. That happened when we got saved. But from good to best. Lord, I blew my opportunity. I mean, you perfectly positioned me in Pharaoh's household, and I I could have made a big difference there. You saved me from the decree to kill all the male children, but I got angry, and I killed this Egyptian, and now I've run. And I've wasted my life. I I was 40 years old when I ran from Egypt. It's 80 years, I'm 80 years old now. I'm on the backside of the moon, and I'm, I'm just tending the sheep, and I've got my wife, and got my kids, and I'm just trying to live a a godly life to you, realizing that you can never use me again because of this sin early in my life until he walks into a cave and sees this burning bush. And God speaks to him from the burning bush. And every time God spoke to him, Moses had an excuse. What miracle will I show them? Pick up your staff. Who will I tell them sent me? Well, I am that I am. No, that's not a name. Oh, it's a profound name. I, I I can't really speak. Can, can Aaron do the talking for me? I mean, yeah. You in, Moses? Or you're not? This one really spoke to me. Well, Lord, I, I would really be in if I was 40 again, or 20 again, or 25 again, where I had my whole life ahead of me and all my vigor and everything, but I'm an old man now. Moses' greatest work came at 80. Are you in or are you out? Is the life you're living right now, and it's a good life, Moses. It's a God-honoring life. You're not, you're, not, you know, you're not peddling porn. You're not being a bad guy here. But do you want something better? Do you want something that transcends anything? Are you willing to step out of your comfort zone into the, the darkness by faith one step at a time and trust me? Moses had a choice just like all of these people, had a choice when God gave them a divine interruption. Now, here's the hardest one of all. You're Hosea. Oh, come on. Man, now you're the pastor of the town. And what I want you to do, Hosea, is I want want you to marry the, the worst prostitute of them all. Oh, 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 yeah, okay, I got, so I marry her, and, you know, she comes to faith in, in Christ like I do, and then she grows to be like this godly woman, and, and we see the power of God in her life, and then we get to go on the speaking tours talking about how I, the preacher, took this, you know, really nasty girl in, and now look at us, we have a wonderful marriage, and we have these wonderful kids, and we're going to name all the kids the glory of the Lord, and we're going to name all our kids about how God is faithful. No. No, I want you to marry her, and I want you to have some kids, and those kids are going to have names like the glory has departed, and, you know, I'm done with you, and she's not going to be faithful to you. She's going to have affair after affair after affair for you. 
And your name and your reputation is just going to be tanked. People are going to think you're insane for even bringing her back. And it's all going to end when she's totally wasted physically, probably eat up with disease, and she's on a slave market up there completely naked, and people are laughing at you because of her, and you're going to go pick her up and bring her home because she belongs to you as a picture of my love for Israel. God, that's not a good ending to the story. No, it's not. Are you in? Are you out? Well, God, all I, all I ever wanted in my life was, was a wife and a family. I mean, I want to, I want to, I want to be a, a minister to you, and I am, but, but I, you know, I'll never get the big church. I'll never get a church at all. I'll never, you know, I'll, she disqualifies me in our vernacular from even being a pastor. They'll never ask me to go to a conference. They're all going to think I'm stupid to even hang with her. I mean, I don't even know how I can love someone like that. The same way that I love Israel. Same way I love you. God would say, you're my living picture to my people. Are you in? Are you out? (sighs) Well, you know what they all said. You know, maybe God, maybe God offered the same thing to Frank, who was a fellow pastor of Hosea's. And Frank said no. And then he offered it to John, and John said no. And then he offered it to Peter or some other name, and he said no. Finally came to Hosea, you in? I'm in. And who do we hear about today? Who has, as Justice was talking about, these crowns of life that we're able to cast at the Lord Jesus' feet? Lord, this is what I have learned from you for you, but it's all you and it's not me, while the rest of us are empty-handed. Uh, yeah, I had some money, had a nice house. Took a lot of vacations. You know, I was faithful in church, had all the little Sunday school pens, but that means nothing now. Or maybe these divine interruptions are meant for you and me. You have to be willing to hear from him and willing to obey what he tells you in order to receive one. And I'll be honest with you, unless you and I, unless I'm a 10 growing to a 12, which makes my 12 now my new 10, and then from there growing to a a 15, unless I'm growing in my intimacy with the Lord, unless I'm moving closer to him, unless I know more of his word and more of his nature and have experienced more of his spirit today than I did yesterday, but not as much as I'm going to do tomorrow, then we're all in need of a divine interruption. We're all in need of God to say, stop, just stop. What you're doing is good. It feels good. It's it's producing this good stuff. I mean, you're not doing we're not we're not you're not doing evil here, but it's nothing compared to what I created you for. It's nothing compared to what I want to do in your life if you will just trust me. But God, if I do, I have to move out of stuff I feel comfortable with, move out of my comfort zone. I have to trust you in the dark when I'm used to making my own decisions in the light. So the questions the Lord asked me are the same questions I want to ask you. And then I'll close. Are you willing to trust God with your future? Well, if I was 80 like Moses, I will because I've only got a couple years left. But if I'm 20 or 25 seeing things my own way, I don't know. Well, it's really a ridiculous argument because that's assuming at 25 you're going to live to 80. And we don't know. 
Are you trusting, willing to trust God with your future right now? Well, God, if I am, it means I got to give up some things. I'm going to have to give up my senseless waste of time on the stuff our culture wastes time on. Television and Facebook and video games and just dumb stuff. Because God didn't call me to waste time. Remember Jonathan Edwards' resolutions? He called me to be faithful and diligent. Well, Lord, if I do that, then, I mean, you may send me to places that I don't want to go. I can guarantee it. Absolutely guarantee it. And what seems like your biggest fear right now will end up being your greatest strength. And once we die, does it really matter? Does it really matter? Well, if I had my whole life to do over again, here's what I would do. Well, you do. You have that opportunity today to begin right now living your life different as if you had a divine interruption. And what you do is you ask the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do? I mean, how can I serve you more? Show me areas in my life that are offensive to you, my mindsets, that spiritual breathing, and I make a commitment from this day forward, as Justice wrote in his Bible two years ago, and I won't ask you how that's gone the last two years. Uh, it was probably like all of us, it's up and down. Probably, You probably looked at James and read that and went, oh, God, I forgot about that. I do that when I see stuff like that. Oh, yeah, I remember when that happened. What happened to me? Are you willing to trust God with your future? Well, yes, God. Well, how about your present right now? How about right now? Are you willing to trust God with your every move right now? And here's one thing that really became clear to me, that God has been trying to interrupt my life, but I haven't wanted him to because my life's pretty good. I've got you guys as friends. I've got a wonderful family. I've got a great relationship with my wife and my kids and my grandkids. I've got, a, you know, all my financial needs are met. I am relatively healthy based on how I've abused my body. I'm, there's a lot of grace there. And I live in America, and we live right now at a time of, of prosperity and of relative security. I mean, it's a great time to be alive. It's a great time to be a Christian if it was all about me. So um, are you in, Steve? Well, can you tell me exactly what in means? And then I can count the cost and determine whether or not I want to do that. And his answer to me, and most likely to you, will be no. No. That's where faith comes in. You sing songs that I'm a good, good father. Then you trust me to be a good, good father. I don't have to tell you the details You just have to give me your heart. So I want you to think about your own life. Think about areas in your life that you find this divine dissatisfaction. Areas of your life that maybe God's not blessing. Areas of your life that even if he is blessing, somehow it just seems like it's void. Sometimes it just seems meaningless. It doesn't seem to really matter anymore. I mean... What's God using in your life to move you into a different place of intimacy with him? Sometimes it can be bad things. It can be a loss of a job. It can be physical problems. It could be rejection by loved ones. Sometimes they could be good things. I just got this raise. I just won the lottery. You know, I'm just, you know, God's doing great. I mean, I'm just blessed beyond measure. When I define my success by earthly terms, as they said in the Keswick movement over and over and over again, to let go and let God. Are you willing to let go and trust him and just see what he has for you to do? 
Are you willing? doesn't say that it's required, but are you willing to forsake all and follow him? The Lord said that was a requirement, but I found in my own life that he doesn't really require you. Let me phrase that. He has never, I haven't known anyone that he's required to go sell everything you have and be destitute. But I have to be willing to realize that everything that I'm working for, everything that I'm devoting my life to, even good things like my children, aren't mine. They aren't mine. Because someday they'll move out of my house, and someday they'll move out of my authority. And yes, I'll always be there for them, and I'll always help them. But they have to stand alone at the judgment seat of Christ. My wife, who I love more than anything else on this planet, will stand alone at the judgment seat of Christ. I don't get her stolen valor, and she doesn't get mine. Are you willing to sacrifice it all for him? And if so, and I'm asking you to do it right now, but I'm asking you to pray about it tonight. Are you willing to tell him you're willing right now? God, I've, I've wasted a big section of my life. I mean, even if you're a 10 right now and things are going fantastic for you spiritually and you've got so much spiritual fruit that your, your branches are just, just bending down to the ground, if it hasn't always been that way, there's been time of your life that you have wasted. Would you not agree? I don't want to waste anymore. I don't want to waste anymore. I don't know what you want me to do. Whenever we have messages like this, I always think where I live, where I, who I marry, who I hang around with, where I work. That, those, those are trivial matters. Those are just details. What I really want to know, Lord, is how you want to use me. You filled me with your Holy Spirit for a reason. You chose me from the foundation of the world for a reason. You persevered in my life for a reason. Taught me to abide in you for a reason. And so from this day forward... I want to be willing to surrender it all to you. And I can tell you from the testimony of thousands of other people and from my own testimony that when you choose to do this, there's an adventure waiting for you that really makes no sense to the world out there. Paul and Silas made no sense singing praise songs to the Lord Jesus Christ while they were in prison. Yet they did it out of joy. Steve, if you will follow me in this particular, you know, if a guy was going to hire me and says, well, if you'll, if you'll follow me uh, and you'll join this company, then uh, here's what I promise you. I promise not to pay you. I promise you're probably going to lose your house. It's always going to be a struggle, and I will show you how much you must suffer for working for me. Oh, sign me up, right? But the Lord may say that to us, like he said to Paul. And I don't know. In the great scheme of things, if we're more heavenly focused, I think having crowns to present to the one who is worthy of everything is far more important than the trinkets and stuff we devote our life to in this short 80-year span that we live here. Amen? So are you willing for God's interruption? He interrupted my life this week, and I will share more with uh, you probably on Tuesday about some of those areas. But he wants to do the same to every single one of us if you allow him, if you trust him with the results. Let me pray.